0: This is Armchair Philosophy, and I'm your guide on this journey to knowledge and self-fulfillment, Professor X. For this first ever podcast, we're going to talk about the 17th century Jewish philosopher, Baruch Spinoza. Thank you for stopping by for some armchair philosophy. You could have stopped on any podcast to kill some time, but you decided to stop on mine. So I want to thank you. If you like this podcast, feel free to subscribe so that you can be plugged into answers for everything that goes on in the universe. Now, you may be wondering who I am and what is my level of expertise on the stuff that I'm going to talk about in this podcast. And fair enough, I'm an educator. I've been teaching college-level writing for 12 years now, and so to make things fun and interesting in my classes, I like bringing in other disciplines into my teaching. So, from a little book I found on the discount rack at Barnes & Noble on various philosophies, I started building my writing courses around the ones I thought would fit well with my curriculum. I studied those philosophies in full and dissected them on my own, either from original text or other scholarly sources— and I simplified them in a way that my students could understand it. With each semester, I refined the way I taught the philosophies until I found the perfect formula. And the students were learning. Whether they were actually putting what they learned into practice is another discussion altogether. But needless to say, some of those who I've taught really showed interest in the discipline beyond my classroom, which is what I wanted. How's this going to work? Let me lay it out for you. Every podcast will highlight a philosophy that caught my fancy, and I'll break it down and explain it, and then bring up an event that happened in real time so you can sort of make the connection between the philosophy and the event. If there is a word that I think I need to provide a definition for, you'll hear this sound at the beginning and the end of the definition. Now let's jump into one of my favorite philosophers of all time, Baruch Spinoza. Spinoza was a 17th century Sephardic Jewish philosopher whose family decided to bounce from Portugal during the Spanish Inquisition and take up roots in the Portuguese Jewish community in Amsterdam where he was born. Spinoza studied the Torah and the Talmud, but he didn't go all the way in his studies. Instead, he went to work for the family business. But his exposure to different people of different religions or schools of thought by working in the family business created a shift in his thinking. He decided to study the sciences and other religions, but he didn't stray too far away from his own faith. Maimonides, a Spanish-Jewish philosopher during the Middle Ages, was one that he studied extensively, and you can see similarities between Spinoza's philosophy and Mammonides, which I'll cover in a later podcast. What makes Spinoza one of the most fascinating and controversial philosophers out there is that his ideas and beliefs gained him the title during his time, the atheist Jew. Baruch wasn't an atheist. Believe you me, I know an atheist Jew and it was a trip to have a discussion about whether God exists with someone who was raised on the Torah, had a bar mitzvah and everything, and still considered himself a Jew. We had this convo while standing in the line for some very unkosher fried chicken and potato salad at a university picnic. Anyway, in order for Spinoza to be considered an atheist, his philosophy would have attempted to disprove the existence of God or a God, but he didn't do that. Instead, he challenged the notion of who or what God is, how God should play a role in our lives, and how to eliminate suffering in order to ascend to our true potential. Unfortunately, his beliefs made him persona non grata. Spinoza challenged his religion's concept of God and his omnipresence in our lives, and by doing this, he is disagreeing with René Descartes' philosophy, which embraced the Catholic Church's concept of God as an all-knowing and all-seeing, blessing us with his gifts, including the gifts of reason and doubt. These two things, says Descartes, should be employed at every opportunity. The only thing we cannot doubt is that we are thinking beings, I think, therefore I am. But this doesn't stop Spinoza from mirroring Descartes' discourse on the method. In fact, according to Stephen Nadler's article titled Baruch Spinoza on the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, which I'll be using as one of my sources for this podcast, his structure and, to quote, much of the technical language of part one is, to all appearances, right out of Descartes. Spinoza's ethics is crazy people and still controversial so I'm going to break it down as much as possible and focus on a few key points. To do this I'm going to organize the information like Spinoza did in ethics but only focus on parts one two three and four. Let's begin with part one. Spinoza, much like Descartes, sets up a series of propositions in which, according to Nadler, presents the basic elements of his picture of God. He posits or asks a deceptively simple question. What is substance? He answers that question with the following. A substance is a thing able to exist independently without any aid from anything else. And this, in Spinoza's view, is what God is. God is a substance, a thing able to exist independently. This substance, God, is indivisible. It cannot be separated. This substance possesses infinite or endless attributes, which he calls essences. Think of attributes as the characteristics of what makes a thing a thing, And even if the thing changes, the essence remains the same. To explain what I mean by this, I'll have to bounce to René Descartes for an example using Noah Schein's article on Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy titled Spinoza's Theory of Attributes. Baruch borrowed the concept I'm about to explain from Descartes. For example, think of a lit candle. As it burns down, the wax expands, it extends, and even though the wax has changed from its original form, it still remains the same. It still retains its essence, the properties that make it wax. It's still wax. It's no different from a candle that hasn't been lit, and through melting, it has merely extended its essence or its attributes. Think about this for a second. Say you're going over to your auntie's house, right? And your auntie is a candle nut. Her living room looks like the place for a human sacrifice. So one of your auntie's candles has burned down to the wick. What would your auntie say to you if she wanted it thrown out? Would she say, Honey, throw away that burnt pile of wax for your auntie. Or would she say, Throw out that candle for your auntie. She would probably say throw out the candle because she still recognizes it as a candle. You get it now? Now, back to Spinoza and God. So, to recap, God is an indivisible substance that possesses infinite attributes. God is the only substance that exists. There is no other. Therefore, everything else in Spinoza's view is called a mode, because anything other than God must rely on something else in order to survive. So we humans are modes. We rely on other things for our existence. For example, we are in a constant exchange of gases, you know, oxygen and carbon dioxide with trees and plants in order for both to survive. We all know about the circle of life and the hierarchy of creatures, right? So think of modes as the melted wax example from earlier. The candle, as it melts, is expanding its essence. So humans, trees, flowers, fish, fowl, all of these are like the melted wax, an extension of God's essence, which is why Baruch states, as quoted from the Nadler article, everything else that is, is in God. On a side note, Did you know that in Hawaiian and Maori cultures, there's this term they have called mana? I'm sure you've heard my super secret boyfriend, The Rock, talk about this term. Technically, it means supernatural power or force that can be either be for good or evil and inhabit animate or inanimate objects. But in a practical sense, it means spiritual power or charisma. The more you build your character by serving your people positively, the greater your mana. That's dope, right? That's it for the overview of part one. Let's move on to part two. Now, as I stated earlier, God has many endless attributes or essences. In Part 2 of Ethics, Spinoza claims two of the infinite attributes of God are extension and thought. These two attributes are expressed through physical bodies, extension, and ideas, thought. Physical bodies aren't just human bodies, they can be non human as well. Basically, anything that takes up space is an expression of God. Our ideas are an expression of God since they come from God's attribute of thought. So anything that results from an idea reflects God's infinite intellect, like this podcast. The controversy regarding this concept is that it was mistaken to mean that we're all God, but that's not what Spinoza is saying. What he's claiming is God is everywhere, we are an extension of God, and the fact that we exist reflects his infinite power. So when we move, when we think, when we do anything, we are reflecting or expressing the attributes of God either through our actions, our movement, or when we have a thought that causes an action. Here's the thing. Rene Descartes believed that our mind and our body are separate entities with separate properties. And because of this, they aren't one in the same. But according to Spinoza, Everything in nature runs by a set of laws regarding its nature. For example, the laws of physics or the laws of motion, like a body at rest tends to stay at rest, right? He claims that there is no God who creates or controls these laws, even though they are an expression of God. These laws are merely a reflection of God's attributes, but God doesn't create or control them. So when a body moves, it's the result of the body responding to external stimuli, either a thing or a person, in accordance with the laws that govern the motion of our bodies. The same can be said for the mind and any ideas that come from it. Any thoughts we have is the result of the laws that govern how ideas come to us. But those ideas, as I talked about earlier, are an expression of God. The tricky part with Spinoza's theory is that it might suggest that he agrees with Descartes that the mind and body are separate because of separate properties. And indeed, Spinoza states, as quoted in the Nadler article, there are no causal interactions between bodies and ideas, between physical and the mental. But then he puts a slight twist on the issue. Baroque states, as quoted in the Nadler article, that there is, quote, however, a thoroughgoing correlation and parallelism between the two series. For every mode in extension that is a relatively stable collection of matter, there is a corresponding mode in thought. Okay, what the hell does that all mean? In a nutshell, there is no cause and effect. The mind and the body each have a set of laws they must operate by, but when they do act, they act together but are expressed separately. A BBC Radio 4 video, which you can find on YouTube, explains the Libet experiment, which tried to figure out the extension of our free will. The mental faculty by which one decides or chooses a course of action. Whether we think of what we want and then will our body to respond or whether it's the opposite and the mind is willing the body to move before the decision and the decision is just sort of a status report. It's a matter of milliseconds between the decision that sends the signal and the body's movement that corresponds with the decision. So there's really no sure way of knowing which comes first. Another claim that put Spinoza in the hot seat was his claim that God is not an omnipotent figure who created our existence out of nothing. So, uh, yeah, he's pretty much redefining the book of Genesis. God's infinite power created what needed to be created. The world is a mathematical necessity and wasn't created purposefully through his free will. To Spinoza, religion makes the mistake of claiming Nature and God are two separate entities, just like Descartes, who believed the mind and the body are two separate entities. You know, Spinoza is not much off the mark about mathematical necessity. When you break it down, it's astounding we even exist when you look at all the factors that contribute to making an embryo. In an article on the Khan Academy website that broke down everything mathematically, only one egg is created by the female versus 250 to 280 million sperm created by the male. Then there are such factors as the health of the female and the male, the body temperatures, the pH level of the semen and the vagina, heredity, or whether the tails of the sperm are strong enough to swim upstream. Now, let's get to the concept that's the mind blower. Acts that occur are not the result of God's planning or a way of control, and God doesn't have a purpose for us. Anything that occurs does so because of the laws of nature. Miracles are another thing that God is not responsible for because nature has a course to follow. The belief in miracles comes from our lack of understanding of how something came about, like someone who was once blind regaining their sight. In short, anything unusual that occurs that may be viewed as a miracle can be explained through science and reason, if not now, then sometime down the line. Nothing in nature happens by chance. Whatever exists in this world was the result of something that needed to be created in order for everything to work together. Remember that line from The Matrix Reloaded when Morpheus says as he, Trinity, and Neo ride the elevator after being rejected by the Merovingian? He says, whatever happened had to happen because it couldn't have happened any other way. So yeah, it's like that. Whatever series of events that occur, they occurred in the way that they needed to in order to yield the results that it yielded. So, in the case of The Matrix Reloaded, the rejection from the Merovingian led the trio to encounter Persephone, the Merovingian's wife, who helped the trio find the Keymaker to spite her cheating husband. You got all that? Because God is nature and not the omnipotent figure as portrayed in scripture, God shouldn't be worshipped. Nature isn't holy, nature isn't sacred. In order to truly understand God, we need to employ philosophy, science, and clear intellectual reasoning, not blindly attribute what happens in our lives to an infinite being saying, it is so because God commands it. Because when we do this, it only results in superstitious actions and blindly following clergy based on their interpretation of God and scripture. Spinoza, as quoted in the Nadler article, believed God is not... Quote, like man consisting of a body and a mind and subject to the passions, God is not a vengeful being who judges our actions, who we must obey in order for us to be rewarded. If man continues to anthropomorphize, give human characteristics to a thing or entity, God is, It will only restrict what we do and how we act, and only allows our actions and thoughts to be guided by hope and fear. In other words, by living our lives in fear of God's wrath, always adhering to what we think will please God to avoid punishment based on what man has written in scripture, we're restricting ourselves and denying the right of free will or free agency to quote Jean-Jacques Rousseau given to us. By fearing God's wrath, we're basically giving human characteristics like anger and love and human actions to an infinite being. By rethinking God's place in our lives, we can truly achieve enlightenment and freedom. So basically, Spinoza says stop praying because ain't nobody gonna hear you. Okay. That's enough of part two, two, right? Now I'm going to move into parts three and four and then wrap it all up. In parts three and four, Spinoza's aim, according to the Nadler article, is to, quote, restore the human being and his volitional and emotional life into their proper place in nature. Man makes the mistake of thinking that they're above nature but we aren't according to Spinoza. We are a part of it, and the way we operate is within the parameters of laws, just like everything else in nature. So the mind itself has no free will. Oh, oh, hold on. Let me finish. The mind has no will, but the mind is programmed through laws to will and action to occur. Brilliant. In part three, Spinoza explains this term called effects in relation to how we interact with nature when we feel emotions such as love, hate, etc. The dictionary definition of effect is a change in state. And as we all know and have experienced, emotions can quickly change our state. When you're in love, you do things you wouldn't ordinarily do to show what you feel for a person or thing. It can be a thing as well, like a car or a tree you've planted. For Spinoza, effects are divided into two categories, actions and passions. In the Nadler article, Spinoza brings up the term conatus. The tendency of all things to persist in their own being. And this conatus is what makes up our essence, our power a change of state to our power that falls under the category of action is caused by our nature, who we are as our bodies operate within its laws, basically internally. Passions, on the other hand, are a change of state to our power caused by events externally. Now, how do I explain this next part without losing you completely? Mm, Okay, I got it. There are two different ways our essence can change. When an event occurs due to something we have done based on our knowledge of the world and nature, then it's our mind acting, like the rescue teams who responded when the Twin Towers fell. Whatever they did in that moment was based on their knowledge and their nature. But when something happens to us caused by something or someone, we are the passive recipient of an action, like when someone does something to piss you off. When we are acting or being acted upon, it creates a change either mentally or physically, and it will affect our ability to either act or not act in any given situation, or more importantly, affect our ability to persevere. Anything that occurs affects our power to push forward either positively or negatively. Because of our desire to persevere or acting through will or appetite, we go after things we think will benefit us, increasing our power to act, and avoid what we think will harm us, decreasing our power to act. Simply put, we chase after stuff we want and we run away from stuff that we don't want. The emotions we feel, such as love, hate, joy, sadness, or Are the majority of the time directed at things that's going to get a reaction out of us in some kind of way. And if we continue to chase after things we have no control over, we are allowing them to control us. So we need to be free from allowing external events or the passions to influence what we do. Once we do this, Whatever reaction we have to something that occurs outside of us will be based on our own nature and not a reaction based on an emotional response. By doing this, we stop external influences from controlling our behavior. Whatever we do will be a reflection of nature or more specifically God's attributes. And to quote the Nadler article, we will, quote, be truly Liberate it from the troublesome emotional ups and downs of this life. In part four, Spinoza discusses what it takes to free yourself from the bonds of your emotions in order to achieve true happiness. To find the solution, all we need to do is look at previous philosophers for the answer. Since we have no control over wanting objects and how they influence our well-being, We need to control the impact or minimize how those objects influence us. What we need to understand is that we will never truly eliminate being acted upon because we are a part of nature. But we can control how those objects affect us so we can get a damn break from all the drama. How do we do that? With virtue. How do we strengthen and improve our virtue? through the pursuit of knowledge and the understanding of ideas. Spinoza believes that the kind of knowledge that we all should have is one that stems from our intuition, because with this intuition, we can strip down objects to their bare bones and get a better understanding of objects and their relationship to God. The takeaway from all that is that we should strive to understand God and God's attributes, and this understanding is our virtue. And once we understand that events in the world happen the way they're supposed to, according to the laws of nature, no matter what precautions we might take because we're trying to obtain or maintain something, the easier our lives will be. The more we strive to understand God and nature, whatever love we have for objects will be replaced by a love for God and the laws that govern our universe. That is the real freedom. Freedom doesn't come from worshiping an anthropomorphized infinite being to avoid an afterlife punishment. And that love for God and its laws, in the mind of Spinoza, is the ultimate salvation we should achieve. Okay, so you got a brief view of Spinoza's philosophy, but you're thinking, uh, so basically you're telling me that everything around me, including myself, is what God's all about. But how do I see this in real time? Once upon a time, I was a daily New York Times reader. Why the New York Times? Because I'm a New Yorker. I was born and raised in New York, so even though I haven't lived there in over 25 years, I still want to know what's going down in my city of birth once a New Yorker, always a New Yorker. But not all the stories I use will come out of this newspaper, but it's kind of my go-to, so take that for what you will. If you've been reading the news, or if you're a New Yorker, you know about the problems on Rikers Island. And as a matter of fact, they intend to close down the entire facility by 2026, and have slowly been doing so by transferring youth offenders to refurb facilities in the outer boroughs. However, one of the few positive things about and Incorporate a meditation component. Though sociologists can't make a correlation between inmates from Rikers who participated at the greenhouse and recidivism rates, for some inmates, their participation in the greenhouse was a life-altering experience. I can hear the prison reformers right now. That's slave labor. They earn like 10 cents an hour. Well, Why? I agree. It is modern day slavery of the worst kind because it's sanctioned by state and federal. But in some instances, these work programs can teach these inmates valuable skills they can use once they're released. About suits filed by the ACLU in some cases in various states, even in my state of Connecticut, against departments of corrections for inmates who were forced to stay in their cells for 23 hours a day or denied conditional release to minimize the spread of COVID. So if an inmate has a chance to get out of their cell for longer than an hour a day, that inmate is going to take it. If you want to hear firsthand stories of what prison life is like while in prison, listen to the stories on the podcast Ear Hustle by Radiotopia and recorded behind the bars at San Quentin Penitentiary. Did you know that the ancient Celts believed that there were places on this earth in which the veil that separates the living from the dead is so close, you are but three feet away from heaven? You know what they call these places? Thin places. And normally, they are places that can transform us, help us find our true selves. Like St. Peter's Basilica or the Taj Mahal sacred spaces usually but not always you can stumble upon one even at a park or at an airport every person is different so we can at any time connect with a thin place and allow that connection to transform us and tell us more about ourselves i consider these thin places to be a portal that allows us to reconnect with the non-judgmental source Spinoza argued truly exists, rather than the vengeful source that demands our obedience and prayers and threatens us with eternal damnation. Don't get me wrong, religion does have a place in this world. People need something to believe in. They need guidance, answers, comfort, and the only place they can find it is in a religion, With a god that will either bless them or remind them that suffering purifies the soul and strengthens the character for the next difficulty and i have nothing against that if reading psalms helps get you through the day i'm all for it but when people use religion to feel superior over others instead of being a better person to others well that's the part i can't co-sign on As you can see, Spinoza was a radical thinker for his time, and if you think about it, very courageous. Some people may think of him as a heretic or a blasphemer, but if you open your mind, you will see Spinoza's only goal was to free man from restrictions that may hinder progress. To quote Jean-Jacques Rousseau, man is born free, but everywhere he's in chains. Please come back for my next podcast, where I'll explain that crazy little thing called love through the eyes of Plato's Symposium. And if you want to know when that will be, make sure to subscribe to this podcast series and you'll get that notification when it drops. And I will continue to deliver some things that could just blow your mind or piss you off or inspire you or just give you some sort of temporary peace, you dig? Thank you for joining me, Professor X, for some armchair philosophy. Sources used for this podcast were the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, the Internet Encyclopedia of Philosophy, and the American Heritage Dictionary. Music and sound effects provided by Pond5.com, OrangeFreeSounds.com, and freesoundmusic.eu.